Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got my Bible open like I do often to Ephesians chapter 1 because I love this verse. It's verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's what I hope happens when you listen to the afternoon show, that you know him better. So let me get started today with a little news on what's going on in Washington, D.C., uh, Rob Louie is my uh, Washington, D.C. correspondent. Always glad to have him on. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal, and I always encourage you to go to dailysignal.com. Check it out. Hey, Rob. Hi, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Yeah. So, wow, are we uh, busy with news today? We sure are. And, you, you know, you're the Minnesota Vikings uh, loaded up uh, with a new tight end, and my <laughs> Pittsburgh Steelers are in the process of rebuilding. So, you know, not only do we have political news, but we've got some big football trades going on. <laughs> yes, we do. Let's not go down that road. We'll spend the whole half hour talking sports. <laughs> but let's talk about the midterms because it is uh, next Tuesday. That's right. We're a week away, and we're in that closing stretch when a lot of undecided voters are, are making up their mind and uh, – and, and taking the pulse of, of what they probably are seeing on TV or hearing in these last debates or candidate forums. So this is a, a critical period of time. And, you know, seeing the latest polls, Bill, things are neck and neck. It's really too difficult to predict which way things are going to turn out, particularly in the Senate. I think that it seems to suggest uh, that that Republicans will easily capture the U.S. House of Representatives. I'm not even sure um, that'll be be close. I think it's just a number of a matter of how many seats in the majority they'll be. But the Senate is where all of the action and and uh, people will be be closely paying attention because there are so many races be it in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Wisconsin or Nevada or Arizona that are still too close to call, um, we don't really uh, know at this at this stage how, how voters are ultimately going to decide. Mm-hmm. Rob, do swing voters m- most often make up the difference? And don't swing voters usually wait until the very end to vote? Well, it, it certainly seems like they do. As you and I have talked about in the past, more and more voters are casting their ballots uh, through through early voting. And so uh, that will continue through through this week. Many of the early voting places uh, cease operating, I think, on Saturday. Uh, depending on your state, it's different in every state, of course. But uh, but yeah, when it comes down to it, it's going to be how people decide uh, to vote on Tuesday, election day. And swing voters do um, do tend to to pull things in one direction or another, uh, particularly in those close races where they're they're highly competitive. And I think that. That's why, you know, it's it's really important uh, for these candidates as they make their closing arguments to really hone in on on what those uh, winning issues are Uh, for Democrats. uh, They continue to hammer away on the issue of abortion. They are are increasingly talking about things like Social Security and Medicare, where they feel uh, maybe Republicans pose a threat. Republicans want to talk about crime and immigration, the the crisis at the border. Uh, But most importantly for them is inflation and the economy. And so it it really depends on which side of the aisle you're on uh, and what message you're going to hear from the candidates. Mm -hmm. I always am concerned about the 
a messaging towards the end because it seems that people go into a near panic mode to say whatever it is they need to say to capture their last chance at, at winning the swing voters. And I sometimes see the, the shift, the tide shift a little bit. And I think, uh, eh. you know, cause I think the Democrats were kind of banking on the abortion issue being the big, the big thing. And I think as they got, they've gotten closer to the election, they've started to say, no, 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 we didn't, we, we like the police. We, we want to, uh, the, the police. And I thought, well, well that- they were talking about not wanting the police. Not too long ago, correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, I think a classic example of that uh, is playing out in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams was, in, in, in many ways, I think, leading the charge uh, to defund the police, and, and yet uh, you know, now is, uh, is denying that. Um, but you have a, a lot of weird things. You have Charlie Crist, who's running against um, Ron DeSantis, accusing him of shutting down the schools, when it seems like he's taken the heat from, from the other side uh, for opening up the schools too soon. So you know, there's a lot of uh, things that I think they're, they're, they're throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and hoping that some of it will stick yeah. with, with voters. But uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting, Bill. We had a we did an interview with Vice President Mike Pence on our SCOTUS 101 podcast uh, here at the Heritage Foundation recently, and he talked about uh, campaigning and how he learned uh, some lessons uh, from his early campaigns, which he lost, where he went negative and found that actually to be uh, counter to what the voters wanted. They wanted to hear a strong, positive vision about the future, and that's how Pence campaigned going forward, including, obviously, when he was running for vice president and and governor of Indiana. So, you know, I I do think that there's something to be said about painting a picture of of what you'll do, being a solutions-oriented candidate as opposed to somebody who just throws mud at the other guy. And uh, and that's how I hope things end. I, I really hope that we can get back to the point where we're having those substantive conversations and voters feel like, you know, if they elect this uh, this this man or woman to Congress or their state uh, legislature, that they'll uh, be able to step in and deliver on the promises they make. Mm-hmm. Rob, over at DailySignal.com, I read an article you wrote called The Great Reset. I would love for you to explain that to my listeners. Sure. I, I interviewed a, a, a friend uh, who, whom I've known for a long time, Michael Walsh, a f- former editor at uh, Breitbart, uh, who has uh, published uh, several books. Um, he uh, is, uh, is somebody who is a screenwriter in Hollywood and decided to take on this project at, at, the, at the age of 73 because he was so disturbed by some of the things that he was hearing from the World Economic Forum and, and Klaus Schwab, who, who is the founder of that organization. And they termed this the Great Reset. Uh, that's the name of the book and the initiative that they are spearheading. And it was done uh, shortly after uh, COVID swept the world. In June of 2020, uh, they came up with this idea. And it, it's exactly what it says. It's, it's to hit the reset button and, and change the way we, we do things in our, our society, largely to accomplish the goals that they have with combating uh, climate change. And it's been embraced by everyone from King Charles to Canadian Prime Minister Justin uh, uh, Trudeau, as well as a President Joe Biden, and so, so Bill, uh, you know, some of the things that that are associated with it are 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 just going about changing the way that we we lead our lives and uh, the, the food that we consume, the the vehicles that we drive, uh, the putting in place stronger governments to. Um, regulate uh, all aspects of manufacturing and, and our society at large. And so to hear Michael talk about it and to, to counter some of the criticism that, that he's faced, that this is just a conspiracy theory, when in fact it's their, their own policies, uh, I think is, is really helpful. And 
Um, I, I imagine some of your listeners have, have heard about it because when when Trudeau and other people were embracing this, particularly during COVID, I mean, I think it alarmed a lot of us that they were using the COVID pandemic to try to advance their political ends. Mm-hmm. Rob, talk about voter intimidation at drop boxes. I heard a little bit about that, but I don't know much much about it. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it is uh, it is a concern. Uh, drop boxes, of course, just to you know define the issue are, are areas where voters can take their ballots and uh, and and drop them off as it implies uh, and uh, and conduct early voting uh, you know some some locations actually have you go into a polling place and you'll fill out an absentee ballot and that'll be that be the form but other states have moved to this system of where they'll mail you the ballot and uh, and then you can bring it to one of these dropbox locations well we know uh, you know from from video evidence and, and other, uh, you know, real life experiences that, that there are individuals who stake out these drop boxes and, uh, and do nefarious things. One of them could be intimidate voters. Another could be to stuff the, the, the drop boxes. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza did a movie called 2000 Mules where he documented through security footage, uh, things that were going on that raised some, some serious questions in the 2020 election that I don't believe we have the answers to. So, uh, this is one of the reasons, Bill, why I'm a strong proponent of in-person voting and, uh, and why I, I think that um, those individuals who, who receive ballots in the mail need to, to scrutinize them, make sure that uh, they're accurate. And I've heard stories, if, even from colleagues who've lived in, in st- other states that they no longer live in, who still get mail ballots. And uh, I think that that creates the opportunity for, for voter fraud, and we need to be vigilant and uh, do whatever we can to prevent that. Mm-hmm. Rob Louie is my guest. Rob, what do you consider to be the news at Twitter headquarters. It's exciting. It's exciting to watch what Elon Musk is doing. That is for sure. I mean, the big news out, out today was that if uh, if you want to retain your blue check mark, your verified status, he's going to start charging you a monthly fee of eight dollars uh, to to do that. I, I can't imagine that that will sit well in some quarters. Although I would imagine <laughs> the people who who have the blue check mark can most likely afford it. Um, so uh, you know, he's shaking things up and doing things differently. Uh, the top executives at Twitter have all left now. They've either been fired or resigned. Uh, Musk uh, seems determined to combat the uh, perception that, that Twitter is out there to, to censor uh, individuals. Although I will will tell you, I have a colleague of mine, uh, Jake Denton, who finds himself in the Twitter jail right now. His co- account has been blocked and he uh, no longer has access. So uh, these instances of censorship are still occurring, Bill, even under Elon Musk's watch, although I, I guess, you know, it might take him a little bit of time to get things in order. I think the encouraging thing is that he's decided that he's going to set up a council which will evaluate uh, these these types of situations, which I think is an encouraging sign. And I'd, I'd hope that he would invite conservatives and other Christians who found themselves censored uh, to sit on the, the panel and uh, and be part of that conversation, because I think that in order for him to truly embrace free speech, uh, he needs to, to be welcoming of all those different perspectives. Yeah, I agree. Rob Bluey is my guest, and my text line is open. If you have a question for Mr. Bluey, all you have to do is text your question over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today 
by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. Mr. Rob Bluey is my guest. He's the executive editor at The Daily Signal. My producer Rosie wants to know about the diesel situation. Should we be worried or or is this within a range of normal, Rob? Oh, I I do think we should be worried. I mean, I think it is another reflection of uh, the the challenges that this administration faces, particularly, uh, you know, here in the short term, uh, because there are a number of of things to think about here. It's it's, um, not just the, the fuel that, um, it, it, although that's a major issue, but think about all of the transportation uh, methods that we use diesel fuel for and what that could mean for, for supply chains and, and other things. So, yes, I, I expect that you will continue to hear uh, political leaders and others continue to focus on this because um, there are going to be shortages. There are probably going to be higher prices. And as just as we know, when when the price of gasoline went up, you had a situation where these companies passed along the cost onto consumers, and we're still paying for it, Bill. I mean, that's why inflation is still over eight um, percent year over year and, and setting uh, setting you know forty year highs. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a big um, big challenge uh, now. Uh, I, I've seen some things debunked. We're, we're not in imminent danger of, of running out of diesel fuel within the next week or so. So, you know, there, there's not that, that, um, uncertainty, but there's, it's still a big issue. And I think that this administration needs to, to be focused on, on coming up with an energy plan that, uh, that is right for us right now. And it can aspire to have a, a greener solution for the future, but that doesn't mean that we have to, to cut off drilling and need to stop doing the things that, that we, we have here, here in the United States. And, and you remember, it was not long ago that we were a, a net energy exporter, Bill, and we need to get back to being an energy independent country. Mm-hmm. So what is going on at the Supreme Court? What do we know about the affirmative action case? Well, very interesting to watch. Uh, this is a, a topic the Supreme Court has dealt with before. Uh, they're tackling again when it comes to university admissions and whether those those colleges and universities are allowed to use certain criteria uh, to to discriminate against uh, certain people on the basis of their their race or ethnicity. And in this case, it's Asian Americans who feel that they are the ones who are being discriminated against and who have appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court because they don't like the fact that these universities are um, excluding some of, of them in, in the admissions process. And so we've seen this play out at, at all levels of education, frankly, um, even locally here in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, they've uh, complained about the admissions practices at, at a local uh, gifted and talented high school where, where the Asian American population was uh, strongly represented, and uh, the school district changed the policy to uh, prevent uh, prevent them from doing so. So, you know, it all comes down to the fact of whether or not you think that uh, somebody should earn admission based on on their hard work and, and the merit, or whether you think that there should be a quota system. And uh, and I think the Supreme Court is getting closer to the day when they decide once and for all that at least when it comes to university admissions uh, that that won't be the case. Mm-hmm. Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can always go to dailysignal.com. Rob, it looks like uh, Joe Kennedy is getting his football uh, coaching job back that he lost for praying on the football field. 
That's right. Uh, it's it's really encouraging. You know, this is a story that we have followed very closely. Uh, I want to say dating back to 2015. It, it's you know, hard to believe it's been so long. Um, but yes, uh, Bremerton High School, uh, where he was uh, the football coach, um, and which removed him from the position after he decided to to pray at midfield, offering thanks to God, um, will uh, apparently offer him the job back. Uh, so it's it's an encouraging development. Of course, this case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and, and it was last uh, earlier this year that the court ruled in, in Coach Kennedy's favor. So, uh, you know, he, he took this, he exhausted all legal options and, and finally won when it counted. And so, um, you know, well, it, it, it's sad to see that, uh, you know, here we are seven years later, Bill, uh, you know, it's long overdue, but an encouraging sign. And, I, and hopefully, you know, something that other coaches will, will take to heart as they, uh, they can, you know, themselves uh, conduct such activities like prayer, and which in this case, I, I don't think anybody was compelled to do, but it was a, a gesture that the coach wanted to offer and others joined in voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Rob, since the Supreme Court's June 24th decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the uh, left has has pushed a, a pretty radical pro-abortion agenda across the country. Would you talk about that? Well, that's right. And uh, you, you, it goes all the way from the White House uh, down to, to states. And I think for reasons that they thought uh, would play well electorally um, and politically for, for their candidates, I, I, I think we won't ultimately know until a week from today when we start seeing the results, how effective that strategy was. But I'll, I'll tell you, um, what a contrast that I think it paints between those candidates who are running on a pro-life platform versus those who are running on a pro-abortion platform. And uh, for individuals to go out and campaign and proudly uh, say that they are for abortion up until the moment of birth, uh, in, in 2022, when we have so much science and technology and, uh, and hopefully uh, the, the moral courage uh, to, to stand up, and uh, and resist uh, these these evil efforts, uh, you know, Bill. It, it's it's surprising. I uh, I don't think that the, that's where the American people are. I don't think the American people support abortion up until the moment of birth. And yet, is that that is the extreme position that Joe Biden and others in in his party have adopted? Um, it's sad uh, that that we're at that point. It's sad that so many of them didn't once hold this position. I mean, Biden himself was somebody who who only recently, uh, you know, has, has decided that he needed to embrace the most extreme position. But I think when you have organizations like Planned Parenthood and others that uh, are out there, uh, not only bankrolling, but, uh, but, but aggressively lobbying these candidates, uh, that's where uh, that party has found itself. And that's why there are, what, just, I, I think, maybe one Henry Cuellar of Texas, uh, pro-life Democrats uh, currently in the House. And, uh, and that's shocking. I mean, that's, uh, that's a, a significant change from where we were, uh, you know, even 10 years ago and certainly a generation ago. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, if, if there is a shift in the House and the Republicans are in control, what investigations do you think they will be interested in having? Yes, well, uh, there are so many to choose from. I, I, I think that uh, the ones that immediately come to mind are, are certainly Hunter Biden. I think that there is uh, dissatisfaction that, uh, that that the current Congress and the Department of Justice have, have done enough to uh, you know really get to the bottom of what was going on with with Hunter Biden, um, and uh, and and 
and his relationships uh, with foreign governments and with with other uh, nefarious characters. Uh, I think that there are, there are a lot of things associated with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, we saw some leaked documents out just this week, which uh, which certainly could raise some questions and prompt an investigation about. Uh, spying on the American people, uh, other things related to the border. I mean, there you could go down the, the list of, uh, of things. And uh, interestingly, Bill, there's going to be a decision that they have to make when it comes to January 6th. Uh, you know, the, the January 6th committee is supposed to be wrapping up its work and issuing a final report, which we expect out after the election. Uh, but there are some Republicans who say maybe they should keep the committee open and continue to do its work because, after all, there were no... Um, there were two Republicans on the on the committee, but they sided with the Democrats. And so it was not truly a bipartisan committee in the sense that uh, you can't count Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger as Republicans when they were essentially doing the bidding of the Democrats on the committee. So uh, there are some Republicans who say maybe there's uh, some answers we could get um, using the, the levers of power on this committee. And, uh, and oversight is going to be a big issue because remember, Republicans are not going to control the White House. So they can pass as many bills as they want in Congress, but uh, they're probably going to be vetoed by, by President Biden. And so uh, it's uh, going to be through negotiation. It's going to be through oversight and, and through trying to do uh, some, some of that hard work that uh, things will get done. Yeah. Rob, is China's economy going to pick up? I know they've got like zero COVID policy. I don't know how that's going to work. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but it doesn't look promising. I mean, they put on their best face with the, the recent, uh, you know, Chinese Communist Party convention and, uh, and of course, uh, a, a appointed uh, Xi to uh, what essentially I think will be a lifetime time term in office. And he's continuing with this COVID zero policy, as you indicated. And I, uh, I, I just don't know if, uh, if that is the, the right approach. I mean, they are wedded to that. They have been now for two years. Um, interesting developments. Uh, ProPublica reported, um, you know, some interesting news uh, that uh, that seemed to indicate that the, the COVID virus came from the, the Chinese lab, uh, you know, and uh, it was based on some some documents uh, from China. So there's a there's a lot of questions that uh, China faces right now. And uh, you had some interesting developments just today. Um, the FCC commissioner, Brendan Carr, coming out and saying that uh, the United States should ban TikTok, which, of course, has strong ties uh, to uh, the CCP there in China. Um, but when it comes to the economy, Bill, I, I think that China is in for a tough spot. The demographic challenges that they've had as a, as a result of their one-child policy have left them in a, in a tough position. And uh, there are a whole number of other factors that are, are preventing the Chinese economy from getting going. And uh, it's time for the United States to recognize China for what it is. It's, it's an adversary of the, the United States, uh, particularly the, the Communist Party and the, the evil actions that it has uh, employed over the course of a generation or more. Yeah, Rob, we just have 30 seconds, but I know the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are on high alert right now uh, with this attack that Iran is, is, is expected to carry out on certain targets in Saudi Arabia. How nervous should we be about that? Well, I, I think we should be particularly nervous because Iran has a tendency to do this when they face their own challenges domestically. And Iran is facing significant pushback from its own citizens over its uh, totalitarian regime. And so what better way to distract attention from the, the chaos happening at home than to launch an attack on another foreign country? And so I think we should be on high alert. And I hope the Biden administration is doing everything it can uh, to prevent this. Yeah. Rob, thanks for being, being on the show. I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you, Bill. Have a great one. You bet. Rob Bluey's been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. 
We take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about preaching difficult texts of the Old Testament. Should be interesting. Brian Morosky is my guest. We'll be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Maybe you've read some difficult texts from the Old Testament and you thought to yourself, huh, I wonder how they're ever going to preach on this. And I've had that same thought, but my guest is Dr. Uh, Brian Morosky, and he has written a book called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. And we're going to find out exactly how that's done. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's go back to what Paul said to that young apprentice pastor when he said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So every book, every chapter, every verse? That all in all scripture would indeed imply so, I think. Yes, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And then if you keep on reading right into chapter 4, you're, you're quoting from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Yes. You keep reading right into chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, uh, preach that word in chapter 4, verse 2. So every bit of Scripture is profitable for teaching and for preaching. Yeah, but you see these uh, passages and these, these uh, words in the Old Testament where don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk, or, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, and you go, okay, that's inspired by God. That's right. <laughs> they're inspired, they're, they're preachable, but mm-hmm. that doesn't imply that they're easily preachable. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. So, Brian, let's a- let me ask you, you say that all Scripture points to Jesus in some way. I completely agree. Um but I would appreciate if you would explain to everyone, including me, what you mean by that. I mean a couple things by that. There's a lot of different ways that Scripture points to Christ. Uh, just about every page of the Old Testament, you can see the sin problem of people um, coming out in their actions and their behaviors and even the laws that God has to give us. Um, and, and part of that sin points to the need for a Savior in some way. So as we read the Old Testament and we see that this problem just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse, and even after God disciplines the Israelites through exile, they come back into the land, they still continue to wrestle with the same sorts of problems that they had before the exile, before that discipline. So in one way, it all points to the need for a savior from that sin, uh, somebody who can come in, reverse the curse, provide redemption for his people. And, And in other ways, more specifically, we see that the Old Testament prophesies about Christ uh, either literally, directly, typologically, or uh, in, in other ways as well. So there, there are both, in a, in a very broad uh, stroke, ways that the Old Testament looks forward to Christ, and also you see those specific ways that it points directly to the Messiah uh, to come. Mm-hmm. Brian, when I hear a pastor uh, preaching on a difficult text in the Old Testament— I don't know about you, but I get really excited. I, I think I'm so glad they're preaching on that. Do you, you must think it's a big mistake for preachers to ignore some of the difficult texts in, in the Old Testament. I do think it's a mistake to ignore it. I think part of homiletics, part of preaching and teaching even, is hermeneutics. You're showing your congregation or you're showing the people that you're teaching 
how you handle the Bible. And when we skip the difficult text, when we when we gloss over the genealogies or when we kind of skip past the law or whatever it might be, what we do is we effectively tell people in our congregation that those passages aren't as inspired or they're not as important to study. They're not as important to apply. And I think that's that's the problem with skipping those tough passages is that you're communicating something about the passages that you're skipping. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brian Morosky is my guest. His book is called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. Now, you did a beautiful job of laying this book out, uh, Brian. You've got your, uh, you break your book into 10 core chapters, and each of them deals with a hard issue. So let's jump into some of these. Which one would you like to uh, talk about today? Well, uh, how about we talk about genealogies? That's one that I think a lot of preachers come up against when they're preaching some Old Testament narrative books, and they don't always know what to do with it. Okay, that'd be awesome. So tell me about why pastors are reluctant to, to teach on that, and tell me why the genealogy is so important. I think part of it is that the genealogies are settled within narratives of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You don't see a book of just genealogies set apart from everything else. They're always settled within a narrative. So when a pastor is preaching a series on Genesis, Genesis 5, you know, that, that might be a challenging text to, to preach right after you've just preached the text of Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Genesis 6 is very exciting. Genesis 7 is very exciting. You get to some of these texts with the genealogies, it kind of slows down that series, or, or at least it has the potential to. So I think that's why some preachers are really reluctant to deal with that. Maybe they'll just kind of group it together at the end of a sermon or at the beginning of a sermon, but not really actually preach that text. And part of preaching that text is to say, here's what the text is. You read it out loud, uh, which is a challenge in itself. But you also explain the meaning of that text and the application of it, like you would with any other narrative around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what pastor wants to take the time to learn how to pronounce all those names correctly? Yeah, that, that's a challenge. I, I just actually preached Ezra chapter 2 uh, a couple weeks ago at Riverstone Church in Yardley, Pennsylvania, and uh, that is a, an entire list of names. It's got over 100 different names, and not <laughs> one of them is familiar. I mean, maybe maybe one or two of them are yeah. familiar, but most of them are just—they're uh, they're challenging. But that's part of the text of Scripture. Which is beautiful, them. yeah. Yeah, but, but when yeah, you go from I, one name to the next, it does sort of start to feel like, oh, where is he going with this? Right, and I think a lot of people were wondering that at first. <laughs> <laughs> but but by the end of the sermon, hopefully they saw this is relevant. This is very, very relevant for our lives. This is edifying, and it's just as applicable as Ezra 1 and Ezra 3. Yeah. Now, you talk about the, the, the details in a text, and you say that God is in the details, and I would love for you to talk about that. Sure. Yeah, what I mean by that is that every detail, every word of Scripture is inspired and useful for preaching, teaching, correction, training, and righteousness. So even even those little details that sometimes kind of challenge us, that maybe maybe we don't understand all the time why they're there, or perhaps it's something that we can we feel like we can just kind of gloss over and, and hit the bigger idea of the text. But those details are what make up the main message of the text. They lend itself to that main message. They kind of point towards what the author is saying. If you take those details out, you've changed something in the author's argument. Mm-hmm. So by keeping those details in there and really dealing with them, 
we we are seeing the fullness of that author's argument. Maybe you can get to it without some of those details, but but maybe you can't. You know, sometimes those details are so important and essential that if we skip them, we really miss the main idea. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brian Morosky is my guest, and he's written a book called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. And in chapter four, Brian, you talk about preaching law. And when you talk about the law, you see a distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. Would you help us with that? There are some who see a very uh, sharp distinction between moral law and ceremonial law. So moral law would be like, thou shalt not murder. And a ceremonial law would be like you quoted in the beginning uh, of this of this conversation here. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. There's perhaps something um, related to the cult or ritual, um, an aspect of that that might relate to, to some sort of religious ceremony. I don't necessarily see a sharp distinction, as sharp as others see it. I, I think that there are some laws that certainly have ceremonial aspects to them, but all laws are moral. All laws have some kind of a moral bent to them or some kind of a moral um, principle behind them. So in my book, I don't make a very sharp distinction between them, but but try to help readers understand how all the law points to our need for a Savior, points to our sinfulness, and even points to the character of God uh, who who made those laws, who gave those laws, and who is behind those laws. Mm-hmm. So the moral law does point to the gospel. It does, just yeah. as the ceremonial law does, just as any law does. Yeah. So how do you preach the PG-13 texts? In the Old Testament, I use that phrase PG thirteen to talk about texts that, uh, if if they were perhaps acted out on the big screen, they would be PG thirteen or R rated. Even mm-hmm. in fact, I at one point I wanted to have it as an R rated uh, chapter, but uh, my publisher wisely said maybe we should go PG thirteen here. Mm-hmm. It might, might be a little bit better for readers, but um, those are the texts that have heavy heavy violence, uh, heavy sexual themes. Uh, just some very difficult material to read through. Um, but one of the ways I encourage people to preach this is to be very sensitive to the audience that you're preaching to. Some audiences can can handle that. Sometimes you have, on the other hand, young children in the congregation. And it's not that we should skip those, but by giving the audience a heads up, maybe a week or two ahead of time, letting them know, hey, there's a very uh, difficult passage that's coming up. Here's what it is read it ahead of time, parents be informed, maybe have some extra child care provided for the congregation so that way kids can go somewhere else if, if parents think it's a little bit too mature of a uh, subject matter. Those are some of the ways I think you should handle that text for the audience. Uh, and then the other thing I encourage preachers to do is to really stick with the language of the text. Don't go outside mm. of the text to, to look for more synonyms for the violence that you see or for the the other themes that you're reading there, stick with the language of the text, and that kind of gives a preacher permission to use that language to talk about it and discuss it in a very frank way uh, that that doesn't gloss it over, but also deals with the text as it as it stands. Yeah, Brian, why, why do you think the Bible includes so so many so much violence? What what is the purpose, and and what can we learn from that? I think it reflects our sinful nature. Okay. It, it's, it's reflecting reality. We are sinful people who are prone to kill one another. You, you can't even get out of four chapters of Scripture before you have people killing each other. So I think it's re- really reflecting who we are as people, and, and again, that desperate need that we have for a Savior. We need the gospel. 
Uh, we need Jesus Christ to come in to redeem us, to bring us peace, not just with himself, but with others as well. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about uh, preaching theologically loaded texts. So when that uh, when you're up against that, how do you navigate your way through those? Yeah, these are texts that maybe generate a lot of conversation or teaches uh, something that a subject that is perhaps theologically sensitive mm-hmm. either for your audience or for the culture. So, G- give us an example of one. Yeah, I was going to say, for example, my the, the, one of the first ones I ever ran into as a preacher was the hard heart of Pharaoh. Okay. The the, the book of Exodus talks about his hard heart and how um, sometimes the the book describes it as God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And sometimes the wording of the Hebrew text just says it passively, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And depending on your your theological understanding of that, maybe you might lean more Calvinistic in how you would describe it, maybe more Arminian. Uh, you put the emphasis on Pharaoh, you put the emphasis on God. That would be a, a theologically loaded text, because either way you preach it, you're going to have some people saying amen, or you're going to have some people really bristling, I think, uh, with how you, you handle that. Mm-hmm. What about when preachers tend to repeat themselves, which I always think is not a bad thing? Yeah, even even the Apostle Paul said it, it's not a bad thing when he repeated himself to the Philippians. So uh, I, I think it's a good thing to repeat yourself, and it, it's helpful because that's something the congregation can really learn from. You see a lot of repetition in Scripture, um, and that's that's something that we need Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about parallel texts, um, if that came up, what would you say preaching parallel texts? What does that mean? So when I talk about preaching parallel texts, what I mean is the texts of Scripture that uh, reflect other texts of Scripture. So either they will quote other texts, they'll allude to other passages of Scripture, or perhaps even um, kind of echo them in a very broad way. So one of the things I do in my in my chapter on parallel text is to say if, if you're preaching a text that requires knowledge of a previous text of Scripture, how do you handle that from the pulpit? What are some practical ways that you can help a congregation who maybe doesn't have that background readily available in their mind? How do you preach kind of two texts at once, once in the background and once right in front of you? How do you do that in a way that you don't lose your congregation or sound like a an academic in a, in a seminary. Mm-hmm. Because when you teach, uh, Brian, do you find yourself focusing in on one text and do you jump around with a lot of other texts supporting your message or can you stay focused on one? I really focus in on one primarily. I, like I, I, I really like to bring out the meaning of that text. And I think if you're jumping around too much, it's too much of a challenge to really make sure that you're, you're developing the context appropriately of each of those texts that you're preaching. So I tend to, to center in on a chapter or a passage and really dig in deep and also try to draw the application from that passage. But, but what I, when I'm talking about parallel texts, I'm saying sometimes those passages that you're in, they, they echo, they quote other passages, and, and there's a need to have a broader base of knowledge of Scripture than just the one passage that you're preaching on that moment. Mm-hmm. I like that. Dr. Brian Morosky is my guest. He's written a book called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. If you have a question or comment, the text line is open, 877-933-2484. We'll take a break and be back with Brian in just a minute. Mm-hmm. 
We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. My guest is Dr. Brian Morosky. He is a senior pastor of Bethany Bible Church in Bellevue, Michigan, and an adjunct professor. Uh, Brian, as I look at this topic of preaching difficult texts of the Old Testament, what is one of your favorite difficult texts to preach on? One of my favorite texts, I really, I do enjoy preaching genealogies, strangely enough. Okay. It was where, it was where I kind of first discovered my love for um, all of Scripture. I, I wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. I wasn't quite sure what to do with it until I dug in, started studying, and realized exactly what was there. Um, since since pastoring, I'm, I'm actually right now, I'm a uh, full-time professor at Cairn University in uh, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, and my my job here as a, as a professor is to teach a lot of Old Testament courses and one of the things I do is to try to make sure that my students understand how do you how do you deal with some of these texts that that you see all the time. And genealogy is one of them. I, I enjoy one of the things I encourage people to do in my book is to is to chart those genealogies out uh, to make a to make a visual representation of mm-hmm. them. And by doing that, you can kind of see some of the connections that the author is emphasizing, and you can see where those connections highlight the themes of that book itself. So bring some of that out. It, it's really a joy for me to to see uh, what is hidden beneath some of those more deeply uh, covered gems in Scripture. Yeah, I'm looking in your book on page 20, and you do have a, a segmented genealogy of Genesis chapter 10. And I'm I'm looking at this, and I, I'm thinking, how much recall do you, Brian, have if somebody said, so tell me. Uh, who Ham married, and what were their kids' names? Because you look at these names and you go, I am so lost. Yeah, I, I, it's not that I've necessarily memorized a lot of genealogies. I, I don't, my life verse is not taken from Genesis 10. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, depending on what genealogy you're, you're speaking to, I, I might be able to tell you one, one or two before or after. Sure. Um, the, the point isn't to get people to memorize them. The point isn't to get people to, to walk out saying, okay, here's, here's uh, the relationship between Ham and Seth. You know, the, the point is to say, this is what the author of scripture is doing with this genealogy. And here is how that applies to my life as a, as a believer. Uh, here's how that challenges me. Here's how that enlightens my understanding of what the author is doing in this, this text of scripture. Mm-hmm. When you look at a passage like in Second Kings chapter two, where Elisha is jeered by those boys, um, do you do you t- tackle that, and, and do you enjoy preaching on that, or um, how do you deal with passages that are challenging? Yeah, like so that? a passage a passage like that where Elijah is jeered and and the, he calls down a couple of bears to maul these kids. Yeah, um, it there's I think. It's not. It's not something that I would say I enjoy preaching because it's. It's something that 
illuminates the problem of sin. I mean, I really like preaching. I love preaching, but when you preach a difficult text like that, that you have the the consequence of violence and the judgment that comes as a result of sin, that I think should really weigh heavily on our hearts, and we should approach it with great trepidation and and trembling, really. But uh, in that passage in particular, you know, he's he's being picked on because he's bald and he he mauls a bunch of youth. I mean, I, I think some pastors can have a good time with some of the jokes that might come out of that, but <laughs> but ultimately it's a passage about judgment and a bunch of young men getting mauled to death. So, uh, you know, it's it's not a, a joy to preach that, and yet it's a joy to preach, if, yeah. if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, I think it would be a joy to help um, people grow deeper in their knowledge of God's Word. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and I, I know that's the point of preaching difficult texts in the Old Testament is you want to point people to places of deeper knowledge and greater understanding. That's right. Yeah, my my hope is that this book will really stimulate a lot of people, not just in preaching, but for teachers of the Word of God. I, when I was a, um, in, in pastoral ministry, I had a number of people that uh, were reading this book and really benefiting from it from a lay level. They were reading it and understanding better, how do I read Scripture? How do I interpret Scripture? Some of, some of the emphases in each chapter is not just how do you preach this, but what does it mean? How do, you, how do you deal with law? How do you interpret that in the Old Testament? How do you deal with some of these violent texts or uh, genealogies or, or whatever it might be? So my hope is that people will be better readers of Scripture and that that in turn will lead to better teaching from our pulpits and from our classrooms. Mm-hmm. So what is some advice for believers who might be tempted to skip some of the more difficult parts of the Bible? I, I liken it to eating a, a walnut uh, or a, a peanut, maybe we could say. I, I was at a restaurant with my son a while back. I have, I have a couple of young kids, and my son was at this restaurant, and they one of those restaurants that give the peanuts at the table where you kind of have to crack them open and you can eat them before you, you get appetizer. And he was just mashing into these things and doing a lot of hard work to uncover a little peanut that he would then throw <laughs> in his mouth and, and really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought of that, and I use that as an analogy in my book because I think it's a great analogy for what we do when we encounter these difficult texts of the Old Testament because they, they have this unsightly shell to them, this, this look where you, you look at it and you're like, how am I, what am I going to do with this? Uh, and yet, when you do the hard work of digging in and you really put some effort into it, the, the reward is worth it. So my advice to Christians who are tempted to skip these parts is to dig in. Trust that there's a reason for that text there. God inspired this scripture and there's a reason for it. And the, the further you dig in, the more you're able to really wrestle with that text and see what's there, the more reward and benefit you're going to have. They're not always easy. They are difficult texts, but the reward is worth the effort that you put into to studying them. Mm-hmm. Brian, you have a nice sort of um, uh, personality that has a lot of humility. I mean, I'm just meeting you for the first time today, but I know Paul talks about uh, how important it is how to remain humble and he talks about knowledge will puff a person up. And I suppose if you get to a point after years of seminary and you do your, your doctoral work, you can have a sense of, um, I'm a pretty smart guy, so you better listen. Yeah, the, the text of Scripture humbles me on a daily basis. 
I, the, the more I study, the more I know how little I know about the Word of God and how vast God is. Um, right after our conversation, I'm going to preach at a, a chapel here at Cairn University for our grad students, and I'm preaching on Isaiah 40, which reflects on the grandeur of God, just how great He is and how little knowledge we have in compared to Him. So I think if you're, if you're studying Scripture and you get to the point where you're thinking that you really are, are, are hot stuff because you know something, you probably missed some of the bigger points that you really should be seeing. Uh, so that my, my sinfulness is ever before me on a daily basis. I'm so thankful for what Christ has done in my heart. Amen. And, and I'm really just humbled that he would use me in any way uh, to, to glorify him in ministry. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then you've got a couple, uh, couple of young kids. I do. I have I have four young kids, ages two, five, eight, and ten. Oh, you're a busy man. So, so life is always a pleasure. We <laughs> we are always going. It, it's a it's a lot of joy, and and it's great to see those kids. Um, many of them, at least, walking with the Lord already. Uh, what a, what a joy it is as a dad. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And then, did you uh, have some candy last night? Did the kids have some candy? Well, my kids cleaned up. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, we we just moved into a neighborhood here in uh, Pennsylvania, and yeah. boy, they within an hour their their bags were filled. They they probably came home with fifteen full size candy bars oh. on top of all the other ones. Uh, and then my daughter, my ten year old, comes into the house after about an hour of it, gets changed into a different costume, and goes back out. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that talks. before. That's brilliant. Yeah, she, she's got quite the hustle. So, yeah. <laughs> um, as as dad, I taught them the principle of tithing and took a percentage of what they had. Very and, smart. Uh, made sure I brought that with me to work today. Very smart. <laughs> You're a smart man. Thanks for doing the show, Brian. A delight to meet you. I really appreciate you having me, Bill. You bet. Dr. Brian Morosky has been my guest. His book is called Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about passive aggressive behavior with Todd Mulliken. So what is passive-aggressive behaviors? Hmm, we're going to find out. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.